And we are back and talking about uh, genetic transference. Well, sort of. We were talking about how, uh, how when Monsanto came up with Roundup Ready corn plants, the idea was you just, you just put that gene, you insert that gene into the corn, then you drench your fields in Roundup, which will kill the weeds, but will leave the plant, the corn plant that you wish to save, unscathed. Now, there's plenty of reasons why this is an insane thing to do. We're not going to belabor that today. But we are stunned to note that um, this whole gene transference thing has gotten more study of late, possibly due to the whole GMO controversy. And boy, have some surprises emerged. Noted new scientist in its May 1st issue of this year, some species of grass have been spotted doing what was once thought impossible. They routinely routinely pass genes from one plant to another, even across different species. This finding adds to evidence that DNA can be transferred from one complex organism to another rather than only being inherited. Now, if you're a biologist, and I guess I can say that I am because I have a Bachelor of Science degree in biological sciences, this is kind of an 800-pound gorilla in the room when it comes to taking a look at evolution. Charles Darwin speculated many years back, famously, that um, evolution took place via natural selection, and it certainly does. But I remember uh, my friend Whitney, who many, many moons ago was semi-regular appear on this program as philosophizing once about a decade ago that, oh, there's more going on with evolution than just natural selection. And if you think about it, if a gene can transfer from one organism to another, well, yeah, yeah, you'd have to say that it isn't just selection going on. Anyway, New Scientist notes that biologists have long known that single-celled organisms like bacteria pass genes this way, a process called lateral or horizontal gene transfer. But as recently as 20 years ago, it was thought that this didn't happen in more complex organisms called eukaryotes, which is us and turnips and redwood trees and jellyfish and most stuff out there that's not bacterial, i.e. all animals, plants, and fungi, including Mr. McMillan. But back to the study. Apparently, um, Luke Dunning at the University of Sheffield in the UK attempted to find out how widespread such gene transfers are. They studied the genomes of 17 grass species, some of which have been evolving independently for the past 50 million years. These included food crops like Asian rice, common wheat, and foxtail millet. The team found that 13 of the 17 had laterally transferred genes, indicating that transfers are widespread. In total, no less than 170 such genes had been transferred. As more and more genomes of eukaryotes get sequenced, we're seeing many examples of horizontal gene transfer, said Julia Van Etten at Rutgers University. She authored a 2020 study estimating that single-celled eukaryotes called protists, which is a fancy word for, you know, a one-celled organism that's very simple, not a bacteria, Anyway, protists acquire about 1% of their genes this way. Holy mackerel. And, even more shockingly, perhaps, the month before, new scientists reported that a species of whitefly, which is an aphid-like insect, 
has incorporated a portion of plant DNA into its genome that protects it from leaf toxins. This appears to be the first known example of so-called horizontal gene transfer between a plant and an insect in which the transferred genetic material performs a useful function. This, this is really going to set you know, evolutionary theory on its ear. Researchers estimate that this gene transfer event took place at least 35 million years ago. It could have involved viruses. Some DNA from a plant may have been taken up by a virus and transmitted to the white fly and then assimilated into the insect's genome. You may be disturbed, dear listener, to, to learn that you have lots of virus in you. I mean, virus that's got incorporated into our DNA. Anyway, it's all pretty revolutionary stuff, and we're going to learn a lot more about it in the not-too-distant future. Now, some years back, I noted that an idiot in my neighborhood decided that uh, putting his house 20 feet higher in the air would be very good for him, although it turned out to be very bad for me. This was in Sacramento, California, I would remind you, a place that is known to get a little warm sometimes in the summer. It has never ceased to amaze me that even in climates like the Central Valley, people will put up a composition roof that is black as tar. Seems pretty stupid, doesn't it? Well, apparently scientists at Purdue University have developed a super white paint that could help us in our reliance upon air conditioning. ABC News reports that regular commercial white paint reflects about 80 to 90% of sunlight. It can keep buildings cooler if, and if they were painted black, but reportedly can't make the walls cooler than the ambient temperature. This new paint they've come up with, however, made of barium sulfate, which is a low-cost compound used to whiten photo paper and cosmetics, reflects up to 98.1% of sunlight and does not absorb UV. Outdoor tests found that this ultra-white paint kept surfaces 19 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than nearby surfaces at night and 8 degrees cooler in peak sunlight. The Purdue team estimates that if 1,000 square feet of roof were covered with this paint, it would provide the cooling power of 10 kilowatts, which is more than the central air conditioning units provide in most houses. Now, I must report that the house which I currently live in does have a roof that is pretty dark in color. And no, I'm not planning to use barium sulfate paint on the composition. At least not at the moment. I'll give it some thought. But I was planning to match up some colors used in the backyard, some backyard, some lovely pastels, and sort of stipple the composition on the roof. I was talking to a friend about how that was something I might consider. This is a friend that is from Croatia, and he said, oh, yeah, we do this all the time back home. Anyway, we're going to continue to research this matter. But these numbers are rather startling. 8%, 8 degrees cooler in peak sunlight, 19 degrees cooler at night. Of course, I guess they could make composition that itself was white, which wouldn't require you going up there and painting the damn stuff. That seems too simple, doesn't it? Given the impact this might have on the oil industry, you know, we might see this illegal in Louisiana before long. And in other news regarding products that are timely and needed, we have this. The Economist notes that sugarcane contains about 10% sugar, but that means it contains about 90% non-sugar. That material is known as bagasse, and that is what remains after the sugarcane has been pulverized and the sugar-bearing juice squeezed out of it. 
World production of cane sugar was 185 million tons in 2017, and that makes a lot of bagasse. At the moment, most of it is burned. Often it fuels local generators that power the mills, so it's not really wasted. But a mechanical engineer, Zhu Honjali, at Northeastern University in Boston, thinks it can be put to better use. She and her colleagues describe in Matter magazine, this, is, this article dates to last November, that with a bit of tweaking, Bagasse makes an excellent and biodegradable replacement for plastics used in the disposable food containers like coffee cups. Dr. Zhu is not the first person to have this idea, but previous attempts tended not to survive contact with liquids, which, well, frankly, that's, that's a bit of a drawback. She thought they might overcome that by spiking the sugarcane pulp with another biodegradable material. She knew from previous experience that the main reason past efforts fell to pieces when wet was that bagasse is composed of short fibers, which are unable to overlap sufficiently to confer resilience in the final product. She therefore thought to insert a suitably long fibered substitute. Bamboo seemed to fit the bill. Grows quickly, degrades readily, and has appropriately long fibers. And what do you know? It worked. When the researchers blended a small amount of bamboo pulp into bagasse, they found the result had a strong interweaving of short and long fibers. As a bonus, they also discovered that the hot pressing used as part of the process had mobilized some of the lignin in the fibers and that this stiff, water-repelling material was now acting as an adhesive. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? This new material is twice as strong as the plastic used to make cups and is definitely biodegradable. And of course, The Economist took a look at the price because it's The Economist and noted that the cups made from this new material would cost $2,300 a ton, which is half the $4,700 a ton costs of biodegradable cups made from polylactic acid, which is fermented plant starch. That's only slightly more than the $2,200 a ton that it takes to make plastic cups. Dr. Zhu thus argues that bagasse is an obvious choice for making coffee cups, straws, disposable plates, lightweight cutlery, and so on. And... Once used, they could be dumped in landfills with a clear conscience. All right, and in other news involving repurposing substances that um, have more uses than we know, let's take a look at Listerine. Now, people don't realize that although it's used today as a mouthwash, Joseph Lister invented the product as a sterilizing agent. Last week's issue of The Week magazine noted that there were some surprising uses for mouthwash, which I think we should enumerate. It's noted that a kitchen sink can get stinky, but a capful of Listerine or other imitation mouthwash will kill bacteria in the drain. If your trash stinks, you can reduce the odor by tossing a small paper towel soaked with mouthwash. You can clean your bathroom with it. Listerine was, as described, a hospital-grade antiseptic before it was marketed as a mouthwash. So try it for lifting grime and mold from showers and tile floors. To clean the toilet, pour a capful in and let it sit for 15 minutes before you scrub. And animal lovers take note, it kills fleas. The magazine notes that you can simply lather your dog with a mix of equal parts shampoo and mouthwash, then wait five minutes before rinsing. Who knew? And here's one we have not tried but are intrigued by. You can treat athletes' feet with mouthwash. To kill foot fungus, it's recommended you soak your feet for 45 to 60 minutes in equal parts warm water, vinegar, and Listerine or mouthwash. 
Straight mouthwash can be used as an underarm deodorant, while a one-to-one mix of water and mouthwash can fight dandruff. Boy, this evokes Homer Simpson's admiration of donuts, asking, is there anything they can't do? Anyway, we've been looking for good news all show long, and, and here's something that, is, that certainly uh, fits the bill. Confounding expectations, it's been noted by those studying the matter, that suicide became rarer during the pandemic. The magazine notes that back in May of 2020, the Australian Medical Association issued a warning on mental health. Amid the SARS outbreak of 2003, the suicide rates rose among elderly women in Hong Kong, and studies suggested that suicide is also more common during recessions. And based on those precedents, the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, projected that COVID would cause a 25% increase in suicides. Fortunately, this did not come to pass. Data from the Australian states of New South Wales, Queensland, and Victoria showed there were 2% fewer suicides between April and September 2020 in the same period in 2019. Of course, we probably should factor in the fact that Australia has been hit very, very lightly by COVID thanks to the extraordinary steps the Australians took to stop its spread. Last time I checked, Australia, which has, I don't know, like half the population of California, had, I don't know what it was, single-digit percentages of, of the amount of COVID we've had here in the Golden State. Now, Ms. McMillan has a theory that if you are quarantined at home, like many people were in Australia, well, it's, it's pretty tough to go out and jump off a bridge. Anyway, we haven't checked in with our Australian correspondent for actually, I think, a couple of years now. It's time we, you know, put a, put a call through. We'll see what we can do. All right, we need to talk about some stuff that's uh, a little less sunny, perhaps, and here's an item that might make a good transition. Smithsonian Magazine noted in its September 2020 issue that in the morning of July 6, 1930, a man named Fred Newton waded into the Mississippi River in Minneapolis and started swimming. He told reporters he planned to reach New Orleans in 90 days. He was an athletic 26-year-old from Clinton, Oklahoma, and he aimed to be the first person to swim the river's length, hoping that the exploit would bring him wealth and fame. His younger brother Byron followed in a rowboat, carrying supplies and taking notes to document Fred's torturous journey. Now, wouldn't you know it, on his very second day out, Newton encountered floating mats of manure and stinking animal parts dumped out of the stockyards in South pa- of South St. Paul. But, notes Smithsonian, he kept swimming, even amid the upper Mississippi's treacherous whirlpools. Along the way, he stopped in riverside towns. He was a talented artist and sometimes painted signs for local businesses in exchange for a meal or a bed. By December, he obviously didn't make it in 90 days, the water was frigid, so Newton donned woolen underwear and slathered himself in axle grease for insulation. This is obviously far before the days of neoprene rubber. But anyway, he did reach New Orleans on December 29th, three months behind schedule. A crowd did gather to greet him, and the New Orleans Athletic Club offered him a hot bath. Anyway, Fred Newton did earn a world record, but it didn't bring him riches. He went on to make a living as an insurance salesman and later founded a company that sold orthopedic products. He died at age 89 in Gainesville, Texas, where, according to his son Phil, he mostly preferred to watch other people swim. Anyway, I have a bunch of meaty items. What's what moment's our time doing? All right, I've got two genuinely bad articles, which are fortunately rather short, so I think that's, you know, all I'm going to do 
for today's show. Anyway, here's item number one. The emergence of a video showing Wayne LaPierre, the polarizing head of the National Rifle Association, shooting but struggling to kill an African bush elephant during a 2013 hunting trip to Botswana has drawn criticism from conservation groups. What's described as the awkward display in which LaPierre shoots at the elephant three times at close range with a rifle while it is still alive after wounding it with an initial shot was recorded for an outdoor television show that the NRA once sponsored, but the video never aired. In the end, the host of the program fired the fatal shot. The video was obtained by The New Yorker in a nonprofit website funded by Every Every Town for Gun Safety. Now, later in this same footage, LaPierre's wife, Susan, can be seen shooting another elephant right between the eyes as it approaches her and the guide, who instructs her to fire a second round between its legs to make sure it's dead. She later cuts off part of the elephant's tail to keep as a memento. Tanya Sunnerback, the international legal director and senior attorney for the Center for Biological Diversity, said in a statement, It's sickening to see. LaPierre's brutal, clumsy slaughter of this beautiful creature. No animal should suffer like that. You know, we might take issue with that. We we don't think it might be such a bad idea if Wayne LaPierre, a different sort of animal, might suffer a little bit like that. There is something truly, truly despicable about people taking a high-powered rifle and shooting an elephant or a rhino or most trophy animals. A lot of times I've seen on, uh, on social media people sending around um, pictures of various such despicable individuals, you know, people that have like shot a giraffe, this gentle giant creature, and they just go out and shoot one to pose by the corpse. Personally, I, I think they're serial killers just of animals, not people. On a somewhat less despicable, but nevertheless a bit disturbing vein, we have this News from the Ardenwood Historic Park in Newark, California. Although I guess the park actually borders Fremont as well. The story is apparently some jackass with a drone decided to try and get a really close-up shot of the nest of eagles in a eucalyptus tree in the Ardenwood Park and managed to crash the drone into the nest. Now, reportedly, observers have seen the birds returning to the nest in the wake of the drone crash, so it may be possible that the eagles may yet rear some young in the eucalyptus trees. Park District biologists did note that uh, two adult eagles first used the nest last year and that the eagles had been displaying nesting behavior recently before the jackass with the drone showed up. It should be noted that drones are not allowed in any of the East Bay Regional Park District parks for many reasons, including disturbing or potentially harming wildlife. This is a sad example, said a spokesman. Noted Marie Sousa, a bird enthusiast and photographer from Half Moon Bay, social media is not more important than having bald eagles repopulate in the Bay Area. To which we would add that bald eagles, while no longer considered endangered, are still a protected species under multiple federal laws, including the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, which says that people must not molest or disturb the eagles. Any violations could result in civil and criminal penalties, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. All right, in the 10 minutes we have left, we have to talk about a subject which has come up before on this program, but uh, needs to get hit pretty hard, I think, at this point. 
As you may or may not know, dear listener, Freeborn Hall on the UC Davis campus is uh, slated to be demolished, supposedly for seismic reasons. Yes, seismic reasons in Davis, California, a location not noted for any earthquake faults being nearby. In the basement of Freeborn Hall for the past uh, half century or so have been the California Aggie and the KDVS radio station along with numerous other, other things like a bowling alley. And apparently current plans are to bring in a bunch of dump trucks and just fill in the hole in the ground that uh, housed all of these uh, facilities, well, for, for no good reason. I'd like to point out an article that appeared in the Sacramento News in Review, an editorial by Scott Thomas Anderson, which I think I'm going to quote from almost in its entirety. The headline of the editorial was, For the sake of public trust, UC Davis leaders must stop emulating the Katehi way. Notes the first paragraph, stubbornly clinging to the former chancellor's nebulous plans around Freeborn Hall's destruction invokes transparent ghosts of the past. Anderson wrote, I write this not just as a veteran journalist in Northern California, but also as a proud UC Davis graduate. Chancellor Gary May and his team are jumping up and down on a fragile bridge of credibility at the moment. It's starting to feel like watching a parkour video or YouTube and waiting for the faceplant. If UC Davis's leadership truly believes that a historic structure like Freeborn Hall needs to be raised and a cherished community institution like KDVS-FM displaced and downsized to a shadow of itself, then it cannot expect the public to just passively take its word for it. And college officials damn well know why. The plan was launched in stealth by the most assailed and publicly fractious university administration in the region's recent memory. Thanks to the California Public Records Act, we know this proposal didn't start as a way to make the campus more seismically secure, but rather as a big-ticket spending item generated by spontaneous daydreaming within Linda Katehi's office. For that reason, it's tainted with distrust and no member of outside consultants, no claims of forward-looking intentions, will change that. Equally unsettling, notes Anderson, is the fact that the current administration refuses to engage in an honest public dialogue about this fact. And in doing so, it appears to be starting down the same dark road of non-transparency that made Katehi the subject of so many unflattering news headlines. Let's recap what was gleaned from compelling the university to hand over emails from the summer of 2015. Then Vice Chancellor for Finance, Operations, and Administration David Lawler sent Katehi and her assistants a Jerry Maguire-like memo about an idea he had had, which involved replacing KDVS's 50-year home in Freeborn Hall with, quote, something special, unquote. Though Lawler's email is two paragraphs long, it never elaborates in the slightest, on what he had in mind other than, quote, a centerpiece, unquote, for the school. Honestly, it's hard not to read it without being reminded of when Donald Trump boasted about how he'd dismantled the Affordable Care Act, and when pressed on what exactly he'd replaced millions of American people's insurance with, he simply responded, something terrific. Well, 
That level of Trumpian vagueness around erasing that gem of mid-century architecture that houses KDVS, the site of countless musical performances, memories, and artistic achievements over the years, did not seem to give Katehi one little bit of pause. She immediately responded, I like this idea very much. Other administrators in the email chain began cautioning about the magnitude of what was being proposed, but Katehi and Lawler never engaged with their points. Five years later, May's administration isn't engaging with these concerns either, and it's keeping up the Trumpian vagueness about what would come after Freeborn Hall's destruction. When I wrote the SNNR story about the KDVS Freeborn Hall situation, I reached out to UC Davis and requested an interview with an administration member who could answer direct questions. A communication officer acknowledged receiving the email, assured me she'd look for the right person, then switched to radio silence. It was later brought to my attention that the Davis Enterprise had a similar experience while reporting the story. Unfortunately, this cowardly ducking by the administration allowed the community ire to focus on those who seem least culpable for what's happening, the current management and core staff at KDVS. Moving forward with something as controversial as the KDVS Freeborn Hall obliteration while at the same time hiding in your office to let the backlash fall on someone else, I dare say, has a very Katehian-like patina to it. In that respect, the issue is far bigger than a historic building and a radio station. Noted Anderson, when I transferred to UC Davis as an English major, I was aware the school was nationally renowned for agriculture, viticulture, medicine, and engineering rather than the humanities. But I never worried about that. Never once have I wondered about getting my degree at another university. I'm sure many alumni within the humanities feel the same and have similar stories. UC Davis continues to have a stellar reputation despite the recent scandal-ridden asterisk of the Katehi era. That's pretty amazing if you think about it and speaks to the faculty's achievements over generations now. But lately, at least when it comes to Freeborn Hall and KDVS, the current administration is acting if that goodwill is limitless. Based on what I've heard in my reporting, it absolutely is not. Katehi left it battered and bracing. May needs to acknowledge this. The only way to ensure public trust about the future of Freeborn and KDVS moving forward is by starting the public engagement process over from scratch, freeing it entirely from the misty banks of Lawler's reveries and the enduring controversies of Katehi's shadow. When it comes to how the community feels about this vital spot in the campus, starting over isn't the best way. It's the only way. Yes, we should add that KDVS has been moved out of the basement and relocated in something like one-fifth the, the space that's currently available for its operation. It will not survive this move. The administration has been vague about where KDVS might relocate permanently. We speculated on this program, having been affiliated with KDVS over the past 18 years, that uh, radio licenses are valuable. We could well imagine Linda Katehi and co. selling off the rights to broadcast on 90.3 FM for cash. As recently as several months ago, this program appeared as a regular podcast on KDVS, but due to intermittent show production and the woes they're having at KDVS, uh, we're, not, we're not sure what our status is, actually. But I do note that the public affairs programming, which, of which we've been a part, has been wonderful over the past couple decades. The This Week in Science program was operating before we came on board, as was Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, both of which are still being broadcast, we believe. 
And we don't think it'd be overstating the case to state that, you know, the entire Sacramento Davis area would and will be impoverished if KDVS goes off the air. I, I know a lot of music fans would, would certainly agree, but I'm just speaking from the public affairs standpoint. And if they fill in lower Freeborn Hall with cement, what about the California Aggie? In that regard, let me quote from a recent piece that appeared in the Aggie about podcasts at KDVS, which involved us. Noted author Nora Farhadel, KDVS, a student-run community radio station at UC Davis, provides a platform for many students and community members alike. From music to podcasts, KDVS broadcasts a variety of content 24 hours a day. She then made reference to Radio Parallax, operating at KDVS, going on its 19th year. And accurately quoted this correspondent as saying, uh, this show is about science, technology, politics, current events, history, and whatever we damn well please. So we've had a lot of latitude, and the beauty of KDVS is that they don't tell you what to do. As long as you follow the rules, you get to do what you want. The article goes on to quote from Edward McMillan, referring to the fact that among his other tasks, he edits the podcast to make sure it flows well and is listenable, in addition to adding music when necessary sharing the fact that a significant amount of time goes into producing each of the podcast one-hour episodes, if you only knew, dear listener. Does it say anything about how stunningly handsome he is? Um, I believe that must have been edited out. Anyway, in a blending of the two fine lower freeborn institutions of the Aggie and KDVS, uh, Nora noted that the beauty of a college radio station, quoting from yours truly, and the podcast that has evolved out of being in a college radio station, is that you have tremendous freedom to do what you want and people are really open to a lot of different things. KDVS tries to make an effort to fill the cracks in. There's a sort of mandate for the station to try and meet community needs and get data out there, and I think we fit right into exactly that mold. The article makes reference also to Michael Maloney, a graduate student chemical engineer who hosts Science in Context. We've never met Mr. Maloney, but think we probably should reach out to him. Nora Fahadel notes that each show of Science in Context is based on one scientific topic, such as permafrost, for which Maloney researches extensively. Anyway, we're flat out of time at this point. This, this, this terrible saga of what's happening to Freeborn Hall and KDVS is something we will continue to talk about, hopefully at great length, and maybe bring some spokespeople on to, to vent. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who's now going to have to sit down and edit the damn thing. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax, and um, we have a huge backlog of material which we didn't even touch for today's show, so you can count on the fact that we will have another one produced very shortly. We'll see you then.